I remember that my first ever time going from the West Bank back into Jerusalem, I had to go through the Kalandia checkpoint. And I remember phoning my mom afterwards and I was just like so shocked. And I was like, mom, I had to go through this thing called a checkpoint today. And she was like, Ruth, where are you from? Like, this is the first, you're 19 years old from Northern Ireland. And this is your first time being through a checkpoint. But interestingly, you know, there's a relationship between this idea of like the revival of Hebrew and also the Irish language. And there are examples of like scholars of Irish language studying like the Ulpan system and studying what's seen as like the success of modern Hebrew being established as a national language and using that as an example of like how should we you know teach the Irish language. שלום רות. שלום מתן. מה שלומך? אני בסדר, תודה. מה נשמע? וואו, זאת פעם ראשונה שאנחנו מדברים בעברית. כן, אני יודעת, מוזר. זה ממש מוזר. So it's the first time we're talking in Hebrew, and maybe it's, uh, it would be good to reveal that you are not my Hebrew student. So what, how did you come here? What are you doing here? I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> I am not your Hebrew student, no, but we met through the Balfour Project, and I do study Hebrew, but not in the UK. I'm currently a student at Harvard University, where I study Hebrew. Okay, interesting. So yeah, you are indeed a fellow of the Balfour Project Fellowship, which I am luckily coordinating. Uh, and um, you speak Hebrew, so how come? Great question. I ask myself that every time I have a Hebrew grammar test. I'm like, why do I study Hebrew? <laughs> why do I speak Hebrew? Uh, I started studying Hebrew because I study religion and politics and conflict and peace building, and I spent time in Jerusalem. That's mm-hmm. the short answer. Uh, and an additional part of the short answer is a got, I got a fellowship to study an intensive Hebrew course at a language college in America. And so I yeah, studied Hebrew for seven weeks, didn't know, didn't know anything, didn't know the alphabet, didn't know a word of Hebrew before I arrived. And when I left, I was able to speak it, before, speak it a little bit. <laughs> before the, I saw that you speak it quite well, but let's take a step back. You are a Northern Irish, right? And you are a Protestant or Catholic? Uh, <laughs> good question. Is it question. okay to ask? Yeah, I mean, it's okay for you to ask me. Uh, I feel comfortable with it. So I would, like, if I was filling in a census or something, I would identify as Protestant because I had a very Protestant upbringing. Uh, I went to a Protestant school. I'm from a very Protestant area. But uh, half of my family is actually Catholic and not from Northern Ireland, but from the Republic of Ireland. Oh, and wow. Interesting. And I... spent a lot of time growing up like with my family 
in the Republic of Ireland. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have I have an answer for a census, but also with, within myself, I'm always like, which one am I again? Um, <laughs> and it's always slightly more complicated uh, than just, you know, which which category do you fall into? Yeah, so I'm I'm very interested in the Northern Irish conflict, probably in a similar way that you are interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I would uh, assume that if half of your family is uh, is Catholic Irish from the Republic, then it means that they are. What do we have again? The Unionists and the uh, and Nationalists and the Nationalists. So they are on the Nationalist side. Yeah, they they would be, but I don't think unionist is very much of like an option uh, where they they live. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. I think that this distinction between unionist and nationalist is more of an issue, obviously, in Northern Ireland because that's how our like politics are divided in terms of political parties, and that's how communities are divided. Whereas in the Republic, it's slightly different. There are still political divisions, but a lot of the divisions are around. Um, it's kind of around the civil war and whether people families were pro-treaty or anti-treaty. So pro-treaty meant that they were pro the creation of Northern Ireland and anti-treaty meant that they were against it and they were like going to continue to fight to create a united Ireland. Mm-hmm. And actually my mom's family, my mom's family is from the Republic and Catholic. They are divided along those lines as well. Uh, oh. So Many conflicts in one, in one family. Yeah, it's funny. I mentioned this uh, to a relative recently. I was like, we, if we sat down and thought about all the different divisions, like sectarian, you know, religious, political class, like a lot of them exist within our family. <laughs> um, but you don't think about it that that much um, when you're just going through your day to day life. So your mom is Catholic and your dad is Protestant, right? Yeah. So if you put it in my background for people who might understand Israel and Palestine politics, but not Northern Irish, would it mean that your mother is a Palestinian or a Palestinian, would be a Palestinian refugee and your dad would be an Israeli? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I feel quite uncomfortable sometimes for drawing such like, like straight line comparisons because there's such different experiences, even though obviously a lot of people are able to draw similarities between the two. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking to an Israeli friend recently and I mentioned something about Northern Ireland and he said I just don't get it like I don't get your conflict like isn't it all just about Jesus anyway because you're all Christian and I was like it's a bit more complicated than that (laughs) but yes I understand why you would see it in those terms coming from Israel it's Um, like they're saying uh you know Israelis and Palestinians I mean they they seem so similar why don't they just get their acts together yeah exactly why don't you just like get along yeah, but it is a different it is a different religion and uh, and in your case it's like the same religion religion but a division would you say it's more the religious aspect that created the conflict or more the british colonization and division oh that's such a big question and basically exactly the type of question that i study there you uh, go. it's a combination of the two Oh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in anything. <laughs> it's a company. It's a combination of the two, and in lots of ways, the two have gone hand in hand over the decades. I mean, one of the things I've been studying with most recently is the area of Northern Ireland that I come from is known as the Bible Belt due to like a very specific form of like evangelical Protestantism mm-hmm. that exists here. And I don't think that a lot of people who would be studying the conflict from the outside looking in would necessarily look 
at the conflict and using the same terms that some of the political figures from where I'm from would look at it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. For example, you know, during the Brexit referendum in 2016, I got leaflets through my door in my mum's house saying you should vote to leave the EU because it says so in Revelations 14, referencing the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that has what I was studying were like the roots of this in of this kind of like apocalyptic evangelical worldview and how it connects to unionism and how it connects to the conflict and how it connects to doctrine and all these different things. But also that is intimately tied to British colonialism and issues of land and politics. So it's not, it's never, it's never, I don't think it's ever purely one or the other. That's what I'm trying to say in like very (laughs) complicated way. So Maybe you can tell us a little bit because you 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 are coming from uh, from um, like a how how would you say it because your mother is Catholic and your dad is Protestant so you come from a, a mixed family are are is this something very rare like do you know many people like yourselves I don't think it's that rare not no. now. Um, I think it's rare for the area that I grew up in, because like I said, it's um, very Protestant. I think the village I grew up in is like 98% Protestant. And I should point out that like my mom, after she married my dad, she began like attending Protestant church and like getting like, uh, I had a very, very Protestant upbringing, as I said. So I grew up in Protestant churches and going to Protestant schools because our schools are divided. What does it mean? I mean, beyond the religious aspects and differences, what does it really mean? So in terms of schooling, it means that like I didn't have an, uh, an option to learn Irish at school, the Irish language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have an option to play Gaelic games. So Gaelic games would be traditional Irish games like hurling, camogie, Gaelic football. Those weren't offered at my school. We played more like traditionally Protestant sports like rugby and soccer and hockey yeah in terms of the history that we learned we learned like british history french history i didn't i didn't learn anything about the conflict really at school Mm -hmm. and then when it came to religious education uh we only learned really about the bible that it it was very much like rooted in protestant christianity whereas uh if i were to go to a catholic school i would have had the option to learn the irish language and the option to play, you know, Gaelic games and things like that. Doesn't sound so, that different from outside, is it? What do you mean? It doesn't sound like such a different. I mean, we hear about, uh, you know, like, even after the Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland is so divided and the communities are so divided. And it's, it's not like there is peace and everyone lives together. And of course, the greatest uh, source of learning uh, is the spectacular uh, TV series Dairy Girls, uh, which I learned, watched. <laughs> very educational. Very educational, yeah. I, I highly recommend to everyone who doesn't know, like don't read books, just see that. <laughs> But you know, it's so divided and you get it from the series. You see like how different they perceive themselves to be. But, but yeah. like, is it like that in what way? I yeah I mean there was I remember reading an article not very long ago talking about how the different communities in north like members of different communities in Northern Ireland are unlikely to meet meet each other until they reach third level education so that means university mm-hmm. that's when someone is most likely to meet someone from the other side yeah. meaning the other community so I think people talk about it in terms of like living parallel lives yeah. 
um, which is sort of what it's like when the education system is so divided. And I should point out, like, there are integrated schools yeah. which are intentionally set up so that the different com- communities come together. But also it's in terms of these, like, narratives that you put, put across. For example, I say this and it sounds completely ridiculous, but I didn't know that there was a civil rights movement in Northern Ireland until I was in my 20s. Mm. Oh, wow. Right? Because I wasn't taught it at school. Oh. And uh, it wasn't part of kind of the general conversation that I was having at home. And, so your education you know, I, system I'm not is from... kind of like the Israeli not speaking about the Nakba, the Nainit, something like that? Well, it's like, <laughs> well, basically there's like a curriculum and the school gets to choose what they want to teach. Yeah. And I think that depending on what school you go to, they choose what kind of conversations they want to have, right? So at my school, we learn the kind of history that corresponded to the majority of the students who were there. So we learned, for example, all about the plantations, which is when, uh, like in the 1700s, where my dad's family came over from Scotland to Northern Ireland. It wasn't Northern Ireland then, obviously, but to Ireland, Mm -hmm. to Ulster. And that's when like the Protestants came over and took the land. Mm -hmm. So we learn about that because that's when like the majority of our families came over to this part of Ireland. And that was such a long time but, ago. So, the, so the, pro, the British Protestants are the Israeli settlers, kind of? Kind of. But it's interesting that you say that because people, it depends who you ask in terms of how they, like, you frame it like that, right? Of course. If you so, ask many Israelis and the settlers themselves, they are not mitnachlim, they are mityashuvim. It's all the same. Yeah, you exactly. Know? So... Exactly. And, you know, the same sort of thing happened here. Something I'm really interested in is, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, obviously, you had the British mandate in the Middle East, and you had Irish Republicans on the island of Ireland fighting against the British to try and gain an independence. And they very much sided with Zionism, and they were allies with Zionists who were fighting to create the state of Israel. Um, and they had this narrative that on like on either side of the continent of Europe, they were both of these groups were fighting for independence against the British state, oh, wow. the British, sorry, British imperialism. Oh. Right. But then what if you look at these exact same groups now or like, you know, their descendants, Irish Republicans now do not side with Israel or Zionism at all. In fact, they are like very strong supporters of BDS mm-hmm. and very strong supporters of um, Palestinian statehood mm-hmm. because they see the narrative has, has turned Why? and they how, see how, Palestinians. How what was the turning point would you assume you mean throughout history yeah, like what history. I mean, generally or... I, i think it's i mean you can you can look specifically at at irish or northern you were talking about northern irish right yeah well i was talking about um irish republicans irish so that was before ireland northern ireland was yeah. established okay so in what year kind of And so Northern Ireland was established in 1921. It's the centenary this year, oh, actually. Oh, wow. Mazel tov. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is, again, like a huge, a huge issue. People don't know, you know, should we celebrate this? How do we commemorate it? There's been like a lot of uh, controversies kind of publicly of what, you know, what does Northern Ireland do to mark 100 years of us existing? Some people's, uh, like certain certain communities, like, event for celebration is another like community's event for commemoration mm-hmm. and of sorrow and it's like well what do you do publicly to facilitate both sides mm-hmm. um because you still have to acknowledge that like it has been a hundred years and the controversy that's happened recently is that the northern ireland office which is in london and westminster released uh like different kind of pr 
material to celebrate the centenary. And this included a picture of Seamus Heaney, who's a famous poet from Derry, slash Londonderry, depending uh, what you call it. And he's from a nationalist background, and he famously said that his passport's green if he'd never raise a glass to the Queen, even though actually he did meet the Queen and he did raise a glass mm-hmm. to her. And so people were saying that to use his image to commemorate the centenary was like an insult, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't be okay with it, and he's passed away, so obviously he can't, he can't comment personally. But, you know, it's, it's similar to, to Israel insofar as, like, we also don't know what to do with our past when it's still such a contentious issue and it still feels so present. You know, how do you commemorate things? Yeah. Let's talk about you more. Do you see yourself as uh, British or what, what, are, what are the options here? British, Northern Irish, Protestant? And Irish, I think. Yeah, British, Northern Irish or Irish. And I kind of choose between them as <laughs> as I please. It's a, it's a question that I have quite a strange relationship with because because I am from Northern Ireland, I am entitled to two passports. So I have two passports, British and Irish. Good for um, you. And, you know, yeah, may as well <laughs> have both. But I would mostly identify as Northern Irish now, mm-hmm. partially because part of me doesn't really feel British enough. Mm-hmm. Um, a part of me doesn't really feel Irish enough um, to take either of those I- identities. Um, for example, like when I was younger, when I was still at university, during my undergrad, I was certain that I wanted to be a diplomat. And then I realized, I was like, well, if I'm a diplomat, who am I going to be a diplomat for? Exactly. Because it, like Northern Irish isn't an option. And also, why would, they need, why would anyone need a Northern Irish diplomat? Um, you know, I didn't want to be a diplomat for... Britain because I didn't feel British and didn't really feel comfortable with this idea of like advancing British values abroad, whatever that might mean. But I also didn't feel Irish enough because I was like, well, I didn't grow up in the Republic. I can't speak Irish. You know, my knowledge of Irish history is good, but not great. My knowledge of Irish politics is okay, but I just didn't feel qualified personally, let alone like professionally um, to go down that career path. Why do we have to define ourselves? Like... You know, people from Barcelona who would say, "You know, I'm not Spanish, I'm not Catalan. Where are you from? I'm from Barcelona. You know, there's this expectation to define yourself nationally. Why? Why? Why are we so obsessed with that? Well, we feel like we need to do it personally because everyone else does it. Like we're obsessed with putting things into categories mm. to begin with. So we need to do it to ourselves. So if you are, uh, Irish then that's what you probably think about Britain and blah 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 yeah and that's also one of the reasons why yeah like I said I thought I wanted to, I thought the one way of achieving peace is to become a diplomat and to study international relations and I then had you know that realization of where would I be a diplomat for and then I had the other realization of I really didn't like international relations that much first of all because I'm not a political scientist and second of all because I found like reducing populations to just their countries yeah, really uncomfortable yeah. like this idea of like well israel thinks this and israel will exactly. do this and china thinks exactly. this and america thinks this and i'm like well who like what is israel and who is israel and who makes up israel and like who makes up america who makes up the uk who makes up northern ireland and how, like how can we just like completely theorize and reduce the actions of populations that's also something about We started speaking about Hebrew and why, why you chose it. 
And I want to go back to my understanding from our other fellow in the group who's a, who's a Catholic that, you know, she was brought up with, you know, with Palestinian flags and Protestants are brought up with Israeli flags. And I think that it's so weird that in such a different place, such a different context, two divided communities choose to take a side in a different conflict, in a very far place from where it happens, very different context. Why does it happen? When did it start? I mean, I also find it very weird and fascinating that it happens. I mean, the flying of Palestinian flags predates the flying of Israeli flags. And it's to do with like the solidarity campaign between, like I said, Irish Republicans and Palestinians. But the flying of Israeli flags is a lot more recent. And I believe it started during the Second Intifada mm-hmm. uh, here. Um, the, you know, the kind, the kind of narrative that people put, put off and it's a joke that was said on TV in Northern Ireland is that like, oh, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That's why people will fly Israeli flags, which is partially true. Mm. Um, I mean, I think it's slightly deeper than that. Uh, I think that there are, you know, kind of like ideological and theological roots as well to why people fly Israeli flags. It might be that on the surface, uh, the idea of the enemy's enemy is my friend on the surface. But, you know, um, Robert Bradford was an MP in for Belfast South who was assassinated during the Troubles and he was a British Israelite. Do you know about the British Israelites? No. So British is- Israelites, it's like this, but it's this ideology believing that like pro- British Protestants are like chosen, God's chosen people. Okay. Um, and like one of the lost tribes of Israel. Oh, wow. And, you know, this was uh, an ideology that was held by this MP who was assassinated and the, which I find like completely fascinating. But when you look, begin looking at these ideologies and looking at the theological roots and this idea of chosenness, and also this idea of, uh, you know, a community being under siege, which there's this huge thing among Ulster Unionists of um, a, a siege mentality and this feeling of being under siege, which goes back to like actual historical events of the siege of Derry, but also sort of remains now this idea that, you know, always needing to play the defensive and protect the defense and protect the power that they have and the position that they have in in society. And I'm saying that as someone who comes from like an also unionist background um, and comes from a Protestant background. And uh, and it's interesting, you know, studying Hebrew and studying Hebrew literature, because this seems to be a theme that you can correct me, that comes up a lot in Israeli politics and like among like Israeli ideologies as well. And there's siege mentality. Like, uh, yeah, this uh, are you referring to Ehud Barak referring to Israel uh, in the Middle East as a villa in the jungle? Yeah, sort of like that. And also this idea of, you know, the other side's uh, demographics are changing and soon we'll be wiped out and we need to like protect ourselves. Mm. Um, it, that sort of mentality as well, I think, has played into why Israeli flags would be flown here. Mm. Um, I'm of course I'm just like hypothesizing, um, but that's that is my understanding of it, and I am like continuously fascinated by. It. I've seen people with like tattoos of the Israeli flag in northern, like the Israeli flag and the Northern Irish flag, like superposed over each other, saying that it's a fundamental human right to defend what is yours. You know, I've seen people like walking around with IDF T-shirts and things like that, oh, saying God, that's that terrible. they would. 
they would join the IDF if they could. I think it's terrible. And so that's what, but that leads me to believe that, you know, it's more than simply my enemy's enemy is my friend. Like there must be something deeper here. And, you know, I could, I, like I said, it could just be hypothesizing and drawing arguments out of nowhere. But I think it's, I, I think, I just think it's really, really fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. I mean, definitely. I mean, I can say I first went to Jerusalem when I was 19. I lived there for the summer as part of um, ICS, International Citizens Service, which I don't know if it still runs or not, but it was this uh, initiative started by David Cameron when he was still prime minister. Mm-hmm. And it, w- it was uh, through DFID, which also doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wild. And basically it was a scheme that would send like young British people to work on like international development projects for 10 weeks around the world. And I had, I just started university at Edinburgh and I'd met all these people who were my age and could speak all these different languages and had lived, you know, way more interesting lives than me. I lived in the same village my whole life. I moved once from one side of the street to the other, you know, I got given a piece of paper and said, you're going to Jerusalem. And I then had to, I then had to phone my mom and say, Mom, I'm going to Jerusalem. <laughs> follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and were, were you happy about it? Was it shocking? I think it's interesting because because I grew up in the church, I, like going to church every week in a fairly like religious environment. I was always very aware of like Jerusalem. You know, it was always like in my imag- imagination as a place, but it was like as a place where like Jesus was. Uh, the same way Bethlehem and Nazareth didn't really seem like real tangible places to me where people lived. Mm-hmm. And so, but I just spent the year studying religion at university. And so when I found out I was going to Jerusalem, I felt like, oh, this is like the right thing. This makes sense mm-hmm. for me to do And did now. you know about the conflict then, by, uh, at that moment or not really? Yeah, like I said, I took one course and thought that I knew everything. So I knew the conflict was a thing, but I didn't, I didn't really know anything. Like, I didn't really know any of the details. And how was the experience? I mean, it completely, I think it, like, completely defined everything that I've done oh, since. Wow. Um, I worked, yes, yeah, so I worked on a, two projects, and they were, like, youth empowerment projects as well. One in the old city and another one, like, further out mm-hmm. near Kalandia in East Jerusalem. And, yeah, the thing that I wanted to say connected to your experience in South Africa is, I remember that my first ever time going from the West Bank back into Jerusalem, I had to go through the Kalandia checkpoint. And I remember phoning my mom afterwards and I was just like so shocked. And I was like, mom, I had to go through this thing called a checkpoint today. And she was like, Ruth, where are you from? Like, this is the first, you're 19 years old from Northern Ireland. And this is your first time being through a checkpoint because like, like ever, like she has been through checkpoints, you know, hundreds of times in her life being in Northern Ireland, but I never had because I was born just before the peace process. And, you know, I'd never walked into a shop and had to open my bag before. But, you know, for anyone older than me, that was like totally normal thing to do uh, in Northern Ireland. And so I was kind of like, in a strange way, learning about Northern Ireland through my experiences in the Middle East. And, you know, that's when I started asking questions and within my own family and being like, hey, what was your experience like during this time? Because, um, we don't really there's a whole thing within Irish culture especially Northern Irish of like say nothing like we just don't talk about yeah, certain like things yeah like the book there's a book I yeah. read it it's amazing yeah. another very good source yeah. for the conflict yeah Patrick yeah. Braggan 
Red and Keith. Yeah, I'd, it's really, really good. But yeah, whatever you say, say nothing, which is also from a Seamus Heaney poem. And it's just this idea if you don't talk about certain things. And, you know, I went off to the Middle East when I was 19 and came back and all of a sudden started asking questions mm-hmm. about, again, about things like the civil rights campaign, which I had no idea about, or um, about like my parents' experiences or like my grandparents' experiences and um, all these things that I didn't get taught in school. I suddenly became like very interested yeah. in and all these questions I've been told but, not but to how ask. come I mean going back there, there's we're always going back to some points that we, we the questions that I wanted to ask about <laughs> the heated uh, family debates I mean say nothing but you come from such from such a mixed family so how can you not understand that I mean you know it's, it's just so natural you know and also I wanted to ask so this is my question from before and um, To what extent was it heated? Because in my family, you know, I have a cousin who said, you know, people like you should not live in Israel. Well, I, I, I don't know, really. But, you know, there's really like, you know, he really, he really meant it. And I really had like, it really affected my relationships with my mother, who now is a peace activist in Women Wage Peace as a pensionist. Oh, wow. But... Uh, But with my sister, who were like fed up, who were like really pissed with me by talking about politics. So it really created a, like a very heavy feeling in the family and really made mm-hmm. put us apart, you know? Yeah, I guess in my family, it was different. I don't know. It's interesting you say about being heated because I don't remember any really heated conversations. Like I would go and spend my summers with my grandparents and where my grandparents are from. They're very into hurling, which is the Gaelic game traditionally played by Catholics. And so I'd spend like all summer talking about hurling. And then I'd come home and my mom would be like, do not tell the children at your school about hurling. And I wouldn't understand that because I was little. But I understand now why that was. And, um, you know, certain things like we weren't allowed to, my parents didn't allow us to own anything with flags on it, uh, like, a, like a union flag or, or any other flag or to like own football kits of uh, certain football teams where it might show like what community we're from and the other thing is when I was 10 I think I was 10 or 9 around that sort of age um, a boy was actually killed in a sectarian attack in my town and I remember then sort of you know things clicking in my brain a little bit and being like oh things are things are a bit strange like things happen here mm-hmm. and um, I remember after that my Protestant primary school started doing things with the Catholic primary school And we started doing these kind of like, you know, like hands across the barricade sort of like things once a term of like getting together and doing arts and crafts. But first of all, it's not really hands across the barricade thing because I don't live in an interface area. Uh, and second of all, I actually already knew the kids from the Catholic school because I played this like very stereotypical, but I played the Irish fiddle growing mm-hmm. up and I used to go to fiddle lessons with the kids from the Catholic school. Yeah. But like we didn't know when we got together on a Saturday morning, we went to different yeah. schools. Like we didn't know like why they were divided. We just knew we went to yeah, different when schools. Yeah, you kids, you don't see kids. You don't see like races and nationalities. Yeah, exactly. So like we would meet up once a, once a term to like do arts and crafts. And then we wouldn't see each other again. And then we'd meet up again and do arts and crafts. And like, and so it was interesting because we'd have these very intentionally kind of like set up activities to like meet people from the other side. But that's not where I formed these relationships with people from what was, you know, so-called the other community. Yeah. I met them through like doing things like 
music at the weekends and I met them through my family and uh, it was never through these like kind of set up formalized systems and Um, going back to Jerusalem your first encounter with Hebrew and with Israel in what way did you resonate with each community I guess you were working with both Israelis and Palestinians No, I was working with only Palestinians, only with Palestinians. Uh, during yeah during my first time in Jerusalem, which gave me like a very unique view on everything, I think, because I don't think I heard, you know, a word of Hebrew while I was there because uh, I lived in East Jerusalem. I lived in Sheikh Jarrah uh, in an apartment that was like connected to the British consulate in some way. Everyone I worked with was East Jerusalemite mm-hmm. or Palestinian and spoke Arabic. like anyone I interacted with. And then I'd like spend my weekends in Ramallah with like all the other internationals. Oh, wow. So everything obviously there would be in and Arabic. And yet you and chose so, like, Hebrew. Own... How come? Well, yeah. <laughs> Justify so, yourself. So, yeah. So my first visit to the Middle East was like, I spent my entire time basically immersed in like Palestinian culture and interacting with Palestinians. And so that was like my entire view of what was going on. And then I returned to, Two years later because I got a scholarship to study at Hebrew U for the summer mm-hmm. and when I arrived at Hebrew U everything was just like flipped entirely like I was told like not to go to certain parts of the city where like I had lived in Jerusalem before and you know not to walk through Damascus gate or anything like that and I was like but that's where I used to work so I don't understand like I just couldn't understand and all of a sudden everything was in Hebrew and And uh, I think it, it was really then that I realized like how stark this divide was just within this one city. I was like, this is again, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about Northern Ireland, it was like completely parallel lives being lived. And this completely fascinated me because I was like, how is this possible? Like, how is this place functioning? Like what is going on? That, because also, obviously like in Jerusalem, you have like the added layer of people not speaking the same language, which is why I became so interested in Hebrew and why I became so interested in linguistics. Mm-hmm. And the role that language plays uh, within Israel um, and within the wider conflict. Yeah. That's kind of a reason why. And then also the nation state law did play a role in it as well um, because it was kind of like emphasizing the importance of Hebrew to like Israel and Israeli national identity, which is something I didn't really know anything about before. And then the other reason I chose Hebrew is because my professor at Edinburgh, who is German, she is a German Holocaust student. literature scholar speaks fluent Hebrew mm-hmm. and we would spend like hours together just talking about Jerusalem and the Middle East and her experience in Israel and she said to me she's like you're never going to really understand you know this place that you're so interested in unless you learn a language mm-hmm. and so it was kind of also like through her guidance okay. um, that I came to Hebrew so there were like lots of different sort of And did it help you? And if so, in which way? That's actually something that I'm mostly interested in because my students realize that by studying the language, there's a lot of also emphasis on culture, by the way we say things, Mm -hmm. how we say them. What have you learned about us, not by the history, but by your Hebrew studying? Yeah, I've learned... It's so interesting to reflect on what I've learned because first of all, I haven't even studied Hebrew for that long. It's really just been over a mm-hmm. year. And it's been such an intense experience. But something that really 
so many things fascinate me about modern Hebrew. Um, one of them being the fact that like it's this idea of like a revived language with then the whole story of Elias of Ben Yehuda, kind of just saying like we need a language for these for the, a people, and so we must use this ancient language. And so the fact that like this kind of ancient language has been like revived and brought into the modern sphere means that the dividing line between sacred and profane is like just it almost doesn't exist in modern Hebrew. If that makes mm. sense, so like we were saying earlier, like everyone loves to like categorize everything. And in the field of religious studies, which is where I kind of operate academically, mm-hmm. the question we always ask is like, what is religion? Who categor- who defines religion? Who categorizes it? And um, normally the answer is like connected to a problematic white man in history and connected to colonialism. Mm-hmm. But within modern Hebrew, within the Hebrew language today, those categories are so like, like they're so blurred. Even think of like, like the word shalom, like hello, right? It's it 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 means hello and it means peace. And um, you know, understanding that the root of it is sheen lamed men means um also means like whole and wholeness. And so that's saying that like peace isn't just the absence of war, but it's like wholeness. Mm-hmm. And so it gives like this extra layer of like sacred meaning to like a very common word, which is hello. Yeah. But then you also have a word like Kabbalah, which is talking about like spiritualism within judaism which is the same word for receipt reception mm-hmm. yeah and so it's like well how ca- how can this happen that like a word that's so important and so like spiritual and has such a deep meaning also is used for such like a common thing day to day that doesn't happen in english yeah. and so that's something that i'm really fascinated by and i think says a lot about um this kind of relationship between religion and politics within kind of israeli society today and this idea of like how how does Israel define itself? How like this idea of being a new and young country yet also has like ancient roots. Like how do you exist in the present while also kind of paying respect to this like spiritual and ancient realm at the same time? And then I'm now at the point where I can study like Hebrew literature uh, and read like Hebrew short stories and Hebrew poetry, and that's a theme that comes up again and again and again. It's like how. How do we define ourselves within all these different realms? And that sort of issue of identity is something that I am completely fascinated by. So that's a very long-winded answer. Yeah, um, you convinced but me. I mean, I would study Hebrew if it wasn't <laughs> in Israeli, I guess it sounds. I, mean, I, I really like to, you know, there are many things that I uh, learn about Hebrew because I get to think about it when I teach it. Otherwise... You know, there are things that sound so similar, but you don't think about them, how similar. In Hebrew, I know by my students that everything sounds so similar, right? Yeah, yeah, everything sounds so similar. (laughs) So, yeah, it is is very interesting. But I have to say, and you said, like, uh, you spoke about colonialism uh, and that it is a revived, you you can look at it as a, like, like, almost a miracle, a revived language, but you can also look at it in a more sarcastic or, or just a, a different perspective and um, you know just just say that it's like a, it's a colonial language mm, the Jews uh, weren't there and this I mean they were in the sacred cities but you know most of the Jews obviously came uh, from Europe and from other countries the most from Europe um, and that was a tool to create a nation of course it what puts people together first and foremost the language 
And so mm -hmm. it was a colonial tool to create what became Israel. Yes, and that's why I say I'm always so interested in narratives and like national narratives, and you know, which narrative do people choose to tell themselves or like choose to tell others, perhaps is more important sometimes. Uh, and like, what does that advance? Like, what, what agenda does that advance, if any? Uh, and are they doing that like consciously or subconsciously? That's also really interesting. Yeah, yeah and you can see that with how people talk about uh, modern Hebrew. Yeah. As well yeah you know my grandma when she came and she didn't know a word in Hebrew when she came when she was 16 from Romania and uh, she just had to learn it there wasn't any option there wasn't like uh, a different way of thinking that you can or maybe even should maintain and preserve your original language and you know mm -hmm. speak it to your you know so many Arab Jews in Israel don't speak Arabic because their parents just didn't decide just decide to not speak it, especially because of the conflict, you know. Whereas today you have more uh, initiatives of, of Israeli uh, artists and singers who sing in Arabic, like uh, Awa and Dudu Tassa. Yeah, I was going to say Awa. Yeah, and Taeb, yeah. who's a Moroccan. So, and Dudu Tassa, who's my favorite, I love you, Dudu Tassa. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, and also like more um, Ethiopians who don't Hebrewize their names. <laughs> you know, when I call uh, 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 Hannah, my student named Hannah, which I have a few, I, I, can I call you Hannah? Sounds so nice, but then I think about, you know, uh, Zionists who Hebrewized uh, Olim Chadashim, new immigrants' names, so they fit in the society. So I feel a bit terrible about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, in Hebrew class, I'm not Ruth, I'm Ruthie. Yeah, of course. Uh, obviously, oh, because like. It's Don't a... be Ruthie, you sound like a kibbutznik. Kibbutznik. Well, it's funny because it's funny because I always hated the name Ruth growing oh, really? up wow. because i thought it was like i was like mom it's like an old lady name like i like i said i grew up you know in the church going to sunday school yeah. and things so i knew the story of ruth and i thought it was a great story but i hated the yeah. name and then once i started studying hebrew and got interested in israel and all these things my mom was just like well aren't you glad that i taught you i called you ruth like it really you know really paid off yeah. at the end yeah. and then i told an israeli friend i was like you know that ruth like that's the anglicized version of ruthy or ruth And he was like, oh, my God, I've never met anyone below the age of, like, 75 who's called Ruti. And I was like, oh, okay. So this, like, is another thing that translates, yeah. you know, between like, the languages. Yeah. Also, it's interesting because, um, like I said, like, our schools in Northern Ireland are divided. And I never learned the Irish language because it wasn't offered uh, in yeah. the schools that I went, went to. And it's highly politicized. And I think language is always a highly politicized issue. But interestingly, you know, there's a relationship between this idea of like the revival of Hebrew and also the Irish language. And there are examples of like scholars of Irish language studying like the Ulpan system and studying what's seen as like the success of modern Hebrew oh, wow. and, uh, being established as a national language and think, using that as an example of like how should we, you know, teach the Irish language because... Um, In Ireland, we don't have Ulpan, but there's a Gale Talks, um, which is like when uh, teenagers will go off to like Irish language speaking parts of the country for a summer and only speak oh, Irish amazing. Uh, in order to gain proficiency in it. And so, again, like you see like this kind of unlikely relationship between 
the island of Ireland and Israel uh, in like culturally mm-hmm. and linguistically that you wouldn't necessarily expect to exist if you only look at you know the Palestinian flags yeah, yeah. being flown in certain areas. Well, maybe Israel, instead of uh, helping with uh, high tech and get uh, some political benefits by interests and money, like what happens with the normalization deals now, maybe Israel can export the way it revived the language. What do you say about yeah. that? Yeah, I think that's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah, interesting. Wow, I learned... I really learned a lot about uh, Northern Ireland and the parallels and uh, it's just fascinating and there's so much more to look into and uh, and I think there should be much more of uh, you know of exchange and dialogue between Israeli and Palestinians and the Northern Irish Protestants and Catholics because uh, there's so much to learn there about you know how can we do things better yeah definitely what's the best tip you would give us it, I guess it's more of like a warning or it's something that I'm very cautious about is the mental health crisis in Northern Ireland which I feel like has been overlooked yeah. in Northern Ireland and in the UK and in this kind of grander narrative of peace in Northern Ireland it's kind of been seen as you know The Good Friday Agreement happened and there was peace and Bill Clinton turned on the Christmas lights and played the saxophone and everything was fine and dandy. And, you know, I haven't grown up with, with checkpoints. I haven't grown up with bomb scares in the same way that, you know, the previous generations have. And so in so many ways, I have benefited from the peace process and I'm very grateful for that. But also in a lot of ways, my generation like continues to suffer because we don't talk about what has happened. We don't talk about like how trauma goes down through generations. And we don't talk about how it like continues to affect people's lives in very like tangible ways. And so that's something that I, I, I would be, I think it would, it would be hard to find someone um, in my generation who doesn't know someone who has like seriously yeah. suffered mentally um, from all of this. And so that's something looking at, you know, someone who's really interested in the Middle East and looking at the Middle East, it's like peace isn't just something that's achieved through like signing a piece of paper, but like it's a long-term sustainable thing that needs to look at all aspects of society, not just, you know, the kind of diplomatic means that we were talking about earlier. And that includes investment in mental health. And so this isn't a tip. It's like more of, um, I don't know, it's more just like a word of caution about the, import- the importance of that and like integrating that into... whatever peace building is occurring. Okay, Ruti. So, toda raba. Ah, toda raba. <laughs> so, thank you and uh, have a shana tova. Um, yeah, shana tova. Leitraot. Leitraot. מוזיקה אמרה לי כל מיני דברים חלקם היו גבוהים כל כך חשתי שיגועים אבל היום אני יודעת שזה לא חלום שמוזיקה בי כל עולמי נהיה אדום אדום של שקט שמש ושמיים